Please turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and we're going to look this morning at verses 35 through 44. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. Let me read it this for us this morning. While Jesus was teaching in a temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is a son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large, large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widders' houses for a show and make lengthy prayers. These men will be severely punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We anticipate hearing your voice this morning through your word and through your spirit. We pray that we would have open ears and open hearts to receive and respond. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been journeying to the cross with Jesus Christ through the gospel of Mark and we have been, if you've been with us the past few weeks, we have been in this section of conflict between the Sanhedrin, the 70-member ruling body over Judaism, between the Sanhedrin and Jesus. And the Sanhedrin has sent these little groups of people to pose difficult and controversial questions to Jesus to try to discredit him and undermine his authority. So they ask him political questions, and they ply him with theological questions. And last week we looked at how they asked him a legal question. What is the most important commandment, Jesus? And Jesus answers all these questions so skillfully that Mark tells us at the end of last week's passage, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus answers with such wisdom and clarity and skill, he silences all his opposition. And then he brings this section of conflict to a close by posing a question of his own to the teachers of the law. One commentator puts it this way, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. It's Jesus' turn. It's Jesus' turn to ask a question. And he asks a question about his own identity as the Messiah, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But the larger issue of this passage, I would point out, is the danger of spiritual deception. Perhaps you watched the Netflix series, Inventing Anna. I know a lot of people saw that series, and if you haven't, it's based on a true story of a, a woman named Anna Sorokin. She was born in Russia. She moved to Germany in 20, 2007 when she was 16, and then came to the United States in 2013 in her early 20s. When she moved to the United States, she assumed the name Anna Delvey and posed as a German heiress with access to a substantial fortune. 
She announced that she was planning to open a, an exclusive art-themed club in New York City, this $25 million littering project. She used fake financial documents, fraudulent checks to trick banks into giving her cash and large loans, which she used to fund a lavish lifestyle. She took up residence in swanky boutique hotels in Soho. She ingratiated herself to people by handing out $100 bills. She traveled in New York socialite circles where she seemed to know everyone. She got friends to book and pay for trips to Venice. She ate expensive restaurants without paying the bill or getting friends to pay. And the police finally caught up with her, and she was arrested in New York in 2017 on multiple charges of larceny and theft of property. But here's the incredible thing. For four years, she deceived many people into believing she was someone that she was not, living a lavish lifestyle and receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think it's $275,000 is the total in cash, goods, and services. At the end of the New York Magazine expose on her life, journalist Jessica Pressler asked the question, how did she manage to convince an enormous amount of cool, successful people that she was something that she was not? To her answer at the end of this article, Anna looked at the soul of New York and recognized that if you distract people with shiny objects, with large wads of cash, with the indicia of wealth, if you show them the money, they will be virtually unable to see anything else. And the thing was, it was so easy. We are so easily duped and deceived by outward displays of wealth. And, and sometimes it doesn't even take that. George Santos, as you know, built a fake resume and fabricated a biography. And 142,000 people voted for him and elected him into Congress. My friends, there is a danger of deception. And our passage teaches that it's nothing new. In this passage, Jesus warns us of the deception of outward appearances and shows us the one thing that really matters. So Jesus, I think, wants to show us two things this morning. He wants to warn us about the deception of outward appearances and then show us the one thing that really matters. So first, the deception of outward appearances. Here's the shock of this passage. The chief offenders are the religious leaders. Jesus says, watch out for the teachers of the law. Beware the teachers of the law. It is, this is a devastating charge. I mean, we, we are not talking about better call Saul types. We're not talking about hucksters and fraudsters and, and low-level criminals. We're talking about the, the religious leaders the ones who were widely known and respected by all. Before we get to their deception, Jesus identifies their root problem, and it's this. It's their spiritual blindness that keeps them from recognizing who Jesus is. And the question that Jesus poses to them is from Psalm 110 and, and reveals the ignorance of their own scriptures. Here, he quotes it. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Originally, Psalm 110, which Marianne read for us a moment ago, was a coronation psalm read when a new king was crowned in Israel. And the first Lord referred to God and the second to the king. He was a representative of God. But when the monarchy was destroyed in 586 and Israel was carried off into captivity, 
They began reading this psalm as a messianic psalm, as a psalm that predicted the Messiah who was to come. And this was the understanding of the teachers of the law. Not just Jesus, but the teachers of the law understood Psalm 110 to be a messianic psalm. So Jesus is on common ground here. He asks them, how could David, who wrote this psalm by the Holy Spirit, so has divine authority, how could he say, the Lord said to my Lord? David himself is identifying the Messiah as my Lord, the one greater than me, the one superior to me. The common understanding of the Messiah in those days in Jewish circles was that the Messiah would be a son of David, and he certainly would be. But Jesus is saying that since David calls him his Lord, he can't just be his son. He's the one, he will be the one, greater than David, his sovereign, his Lord. And of course, this is a veiled claim to Jesus' own identity. He's saying to the religious leaders, I'm that Messiah. Not just the son of David, but God's son. Transcendent in power whom King David himself would bow before. And the scribes obviously don't agree or they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. Jesus calling out the teachers of the law and their blindness to their own scriptures and their blindness to who Jesus is, standing right in front of them. And then Jesus goes on to call out their deception, the deception of outward appearance. In verses 38 through 40, he lays out this scathing critique of these respected religious leaders. He says that they love prestige. Verse 38, they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplace. These flowing robes would have been these full-length white prayer shawls that they would wear that would make them stand out from the colorful garb of the common Jewish people. It was a mark of distinction for the scribes and priests. Kind of like the academic gowns and stoles and hats that you see your professors wear in graduation processions. So that, that garb communicates rank and power. The same way these scribes would wear these full-length white prayer stalls in public as a way of parading their position and prestige. When a scribe walked down the street or when they passed the marketplaces, people were expected to rise and greet them with titles of respect like rabbi or father and Jesus says these leaders love this. They, they love wearing these robes. They love walking through the marketplace and hearing people rise and greet them with respect. They love power. Verse 39, they, they have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. The most important seats in the synagogue were the benches along the walls and especially that seat at the front of the synagogue where you sat with your back to the, uh, the, the chest that held the Torah and you faced the congregation. These scribes loved these seats. At the banquets, it was a great honor to have a teacher of the law attend your wedding or the wedding of your child, and so they gave the highest places to the teachers of the law. They, they love this. They love taking the most important seats and the seats of honor at the banquets. Just as they take advantage of the poor, verse 40. They devour widows' houses. The widows were the most vulnerable members of that culture, and that's why there's this persistent biblical call to care for the widows and the orphans. These teachers of the law didn't come from money. They depended on the gifts of the people for their livelihood. They, they depended on the generosity of, of widows and their hospitality. And perhaps they were taking advantage of this. 
charging excessive legal fees or mismanaging money that had been entrusted to them. And, and, and in some way or another, they were taking advantage of the most vulnerable members of the culture. She says they're making a pretense of prayer. Verse 40. For show, they make lengthy prayers. These teachers of the law, prayer had become not about talking to God, but about putting on a show. It's a devastating description of these religious leaders who care about prestige and power and position and pretense. Not about poor, not about the poor, not about prayer. And Jesus gives the strongest denunciation of them. He says, such men will be punished most severely. It's the deception of outward appearances. Jesus says, watch out. Beware. These teachers have the outward appearance of spiritual reality, but not the inward reality. A number of years ago, I read a book by Eugene Peterson to pastors about recovering integrity in pastoral ministry. And in that book, he writes this. He says, For a long time, I have been convinced that I could take a person with a high school education, give him or her a six-month trade school training, and provide a pastor who would be, sat who'd be satisfactory to any discriminating American congregation. He says the curriculum would consist of four courses. Course number one, creative plagiarism. I would put you in touch with a wide range of excellent and inspirational talks, show you how to alter them just enough to obscure their origins, and give you a reputation for wit and wisdom. Course number two, voice control for prayer and counseling. We would develop your own distinct style of Holy Joe intonation, acquiring the skill and resonance and modulation that conveys an unmistakable aura of sanctity. Course number three, efficient office management. He says, there is nothing that parishioners admire more in their pastors than the capacity to run a tight ship administratively. If we return all telephone calls within 24 hours, answer all letters within a week, distributing enough carbons to keep people so that they know we are on top of things, and have just the right amount of clutter on our desks, not too much or we appear inefficient, not too little or we appear underemployed, we quickly get the reputation for efficiency that is far more important than anything that we could actually do. Course number four, image project projection. Here we would master the dozen well-known and easily implemented devices that create the impression that we are terrifically busy and widely sought after for counsel by influential people in the community. He says a one-week refresher course each year would introduce new phrases that would convince our parishioners that we are bold innovators on the cutting edge of the megatrends, and at the same time solidly rooted in all the traditional values of our ancestors. Eugene Peterson then adds this addendum. He says, I've been laughing for several years over this trade school training for pastors with which I plan to make my fortune. Recently, though, the, war the joke has backfired on me. I keep seeing advertisements for institutes and workshops all over the country that invite pastors to sign up for this exact curriculum. My friends, it's a danger of spiritual deception. The deception of outward appearances. I've been reading a series of articles by Tim Keller on the decline and renewal of the American church. One of the articles he writes in this series is on the decline of evangelicalism in particular. 
And he says that since 2007, evangelicalism has been on the decline. And all indications are that in the coming years, an unprecedented number of younger Americans will be leaving churches and institutional religion of all kinds behind. He says, why is this? Why this decline? And certainly the reasons are complex and multifaceted. But one of the reasons he identifies is the growing number of churches and leaders who are guilty of spiritual and sexual abuse. You know this because it's in the news. It's been in the news. There is a church two movement that has re revealed this, this, this growing string of misconduct by, by ministers and pastors and, and church leaders. And so, of course, this breeds cynicism and skepticism towards the church. This problem of spiritual leaders with the outward appearance but without the inward reality is, is nothing new, Jesus says. It's something to watch out for. He says, beware this. Thousands of years ago, he said this. And I also want to point out that Christianity has a resources for self-critique. Jesus is critiquing these leaders right here. Christianity rightly holds its leaders, and me included, up to a higher standard. James 3, 1 says, not many of you should, should presume to be teachers because we know that you'll be judged more strictly. You see, Christianity is right to hold its leaders up to a higher standard. And so the church, I certainly am chastened and repentant over the church too movement. There is a danger of spiritual deception, not just among our leaders, of course, but among ourselves as well. It's having the appearance of spiritual, spiritual, uh, uh, spirituality without the reality of it. It's honoring God with our lips while our hearts are far from him. It's practicing our deeds of righteousness before people to be seen by them, Jesus says in Matthew 6. The temptation to give and pray and fast to be seen by others. It happens when we put our best on on Sunday and leave our worst Monday through Friday. It's the deception of outward appearances. Jesus then goes on to turn the corner and then lays out before us, he shows us the one thing that really matters. If that's the deception of outward appearances, what is the one thing that really matters? In verses 41 through 44, there's a scene change. Jesus has been in the temple, but now he's in a particular part of the temple. He's in the temple treasury, which was in the court of women. It was the first enclosed area of the temple where Jewish women and children were welcomed to come and worship. And the function of the temple was not just for worship, it was also for receiving and managing large amounts of money. And so to do that, there were 13 so-called shofar chests for offering. They were these enormous trumpet-shaped receptacles tapered at the top to keep people from helping themselves to the offering. You put your offering in there and it would drop down into these receptacles. And Jesus is watching and he sees a poor widow put two very small copper coins into the offering. They were the smallest coins in circulation. Some have said it, it was the equivalent of one 128th of a denarius, which was a day's wage. So we're talking about the pay you get for a few minutes of work. I mean, you're talking about pennies, maybe at most a few dollars. By outward appearance, this woman is awfully insignificant. She herself is insignificant. She's a, a poor widow in contrast to the wealthy, impressive people around her. 
what she does is insignificant. She, she's not trying to make a show out of her offering. You, you wouldn't make a show out of a few pennies. There's, there's nothing to see. She's in, what she does is insignificant. She doesn't want any attention. She's not trying to call any attention to what she's doing. Her gift is certainly insignificant. It's a small fraction of the large gifts of the wealthy. But here's the amazing thing. This small little offering ends up being one of the most important and well-known donations in the history of the church. I mean, when we think of important donations, we, we think of those donations where you get a, a wing of the church named after you, or, you know, we think of the donations from, from the Bill Gates-type people of, of this world. But Jesus sees what this woman does, and he gathers his disciples together, and he makes this pronouncement to them. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Jesus is saying, don't miss this woman because everyone else is missing this woman, but you don't miss this woman. Because what she does is noteworthy. She is an example of true spirituality. Not the religious leaders that everyone respects, but this woman. And he gathers them together and points this out so that they can learn from her. So that we can learn from her. What does this poor widow teach us? She teaches us that what is important to God is not who you are when everyone's looking, but who you are when no one's looking. These religious leaders are who you are when everyone's looking. You put on a show. You put on your, your best appearance. You, you impress everyone around you. The religious leaders know how to do that. They know how to put up a good front when everyone's looking. But this widow represents who you are when no one's looking or when you think no one's looking. She doesn't realize Jesus is looking. When she puts her offering in humbly, she doesn't think anyone is noticing what she does. This poor widow teaches us that what is important to God is not the size of our gift, but the state of our heart. The contrast couldn't be greater. I mean, everything about this woman on the outside says, says less. Social status, less. Clothes, less. Gift, less. And yet Jesus says she gave more. Now, I'm not great at math, but my math is not so bad. I, I, don't, I don't totally understand. How does she give more? She only gave a, a few coins. How does she give more? Well, Jesus is saying that God's math is different from ours. God counts the state of our heart more important than the size of our gift. And Jesus says sometimes the state of our heart is better, better measured not by what we give, but what, by what we keep what we hold back. See, these wealthy are giving a lot, but they're giving just a fraction of their wealth. They're holding back a lot for themselves. They're, they're just giving a little bit of the excess. It's a lot, but it's just a little excess of their wealth. It's, it's the leftovers. They're not really giving their hearts to God. And yet this widow gives only a few coins, but it's everything. She gives God her heart and her life. Verse 44 could be translated this. Out of her poverty, she put in everything, even her whole life. She shows us the one thing that really matters. It's our hearts. God wants our hearts at the end of the day. 
you know, Valentine's Day is just around the corner. And husbands, we're perhaps starting to think about how we can honor our wives on that day. Let me offer up some scenarios. How would our wives respond if we gave them a box of chocolates and said, well, this is, this is great. You'll never understand what a, a good deal I got on these. This was in the clearance section. <laughs> what if our, we gave our wives a beautiful bouquet of flowers and said, honey, I got this for you. It's my Valentine's Day duty. <laughs> or if we decide, you know, we're going to go all out and, and get them something sparkly from Tiffany's. And then we say, I, I hope this will make up for the fact that I've been so busy, I, I just I don't get a chance to spend any time with you. I hope this will, will make up for that. Or if we buy them a flat screen TV and we say, uh, happy early Valentine's Day. We can, now we can watch the Super Bowl together. <laughs> of course, it's not the size of the gift that matters. It's the state of our hearts. Right? Our wives most want to know. Do they have our hearts? Do we love them with our whole heart? And the best gift is that gift that expresses our genuine love, even if it costs no money at all. And God is no different. The one thing that is important is our hearts. He wants what the widow gives, her heart, her life, everything that she has. Jesus warns us of the deception of outward appearances and shows us the one thing that really matters. It's offering to God our hearts. How do we do that? The story is told of a farmer who, out of love for his king, grew a big, mighty carrot and brought it to the king and said, Here, my lord, king, out of love for you, I have grown this carrot for you. And the king is moved by this demonstration of love and says to the farmer, I will take your land and double it. Another nobleman hears of this and he says to himself, wow, he, if he got double for a carrot, what will I get for a horse? So he brings one of his finest horses to the king and says, here, my lord, out of love for you, I bring you this horse. And the king discerning his heart says, get out, you disgust me. The nobleman says, Why? The king says, the farmer gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. It's not the size of the gift that matters, but the state of our heart. Jesus here is searching our motives. Why do we do what we do? Why do we give to God? Why do we serve God? Is it for outward appearances? Is it for our reputation? Is it for others to see? Is it just a surplus, the leftovers? Is it to, to win a blessing from God, a quid pro quo? I, I do this for you, God, so you, you do this for me. Or is it a genuine expression of our hearts, of our love for him? When Mark tells us that this widow put in everything, even her whole life, my friends, it is a reflection of someone greater who did the same, Jesus Christ who put in everything that he had, not just the leftovers. Paul says that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. So that through his poverty we might become rich. He gave it all. He loved us self-sacrificially. So that when we understand what he did for us, it gives us the motivation to do for him what this poor widow 
did out of love to give self-sacrificially of our time and our money and our gifts. What might that look like? Consider, for example, our giving pattern. Our giving pattern here for years has been we fall way behind all year in our budget. We catch up in the last two weeks in this. It's this dramatic nail-biting finish, which in some ways is great, but also stressful. And maybe out of love for God, if we don't give regularly through the year, we only give at the end of the year, maybe out of love for God, we would give regularly through the year. How about our serving pattern? Sometimes we're, we're most eager to serve, uh, volunteer our time in our careers and in our schools and, and for our sports teams, and that's great, but the church and God gets the leftovers. And perhaps out of love, you might consider God and the church as a higher priority for your time and your gifts. Some of us here I know serve faithfully and self-sacrificially behind the scenes, like this poor widow. And sometimes you say to yourself, does anyone notice? Does this make a difference? And Jesus wants you to know that it does make a difference. He sees. He knows. He sees this widow that no one else sees. And he says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. My friends, Jesus warns us of the deception of outward appearances and shows us the one thing that really matters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the x-ray work that your word does on our hearts. Lord, we see the danger of living for outward appearances. Lord, help us to recognize and repent of ways that may be true of us and to turn our attention to the one thing that really matters, not the outward appearance, but our hearts. Lord, would you show us what it means to emulate this poor widow who out of love for you gave everything that she had. Because Jesus Christ gave everything that he had for us, help us to respond in kind. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.